We're going to be learning Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the fourth and final piece in Hilchos Gerushin. This is Perak Yudbeis Halacha Chaf Aleph. And Rab Chaim is dealing with an issue which is going to be a major theme in throughout Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, particularly in the last few pieces in Hilchos Rotseach. With regard to the power, how Edus testimony works. Generally, the rule is that there have to be two witnesses, but there are exceptional cases where one witness works. So Rab Chaim explores the nature of the power that one witness has and what that teaches us about Edus more generally in Halacha. The Rambam writes in a case where a wife testifies that her husband died, so that's one of the exceptional cases where one witness is believed. Uh, and then a one kosher witness came, and he said that the husband didn't die. So the halach is that she should not remarry because there's a witness against her testimony. And if she does marry against the rules, then she has to leave her second husband. Now, the Magid Mishnah quotes that the Ramban and the Rashba disagree with this, and they hold that even if one kosher witness comes and disagrees with her testimony that her husband died, still we apply the rule of wherever the Torah believed one witness, they have the power of two. So the fact that the Torah believed this wife to say that her husband died is as if she's two witnesses. She has the power of two witnesses. So this one witness who's coming and disputing her testimony has no standing. It's as if he's one witness against two witnesses, and therefore he has no power to do anything, and she's allowed to remarry. And the proof the Ramban and the Rashba have is from the Yushalmi, which quotes from Gidol Bar Ben Yamin in the name of Rav, that wherever we believe the testimony of a woman, a man can go against the woman, and a woman could go against the man. In other words, she has the same standing as a man. And the Rab Chaim quotes also in the Gemara in Ksubis, Davchav Gimel, it says that if a woman was taken captive, and she testifies that she and her friend, who were both captives, are still Tahor, they were not touched by any of the men illicitly, and then a witness comes against them and says that they're both impure that they were violated in the captivity. So the Gemara says that she and her friend are believed based on her testimony, and the Rambam also in Hoxi Surabir and Perak Yudches quotes this. So you see that even though in general a woman is disqualified from being a witness, wherever a woman is believed in testimony, she has the same standing as a man. So based on that, we should apply the rule when the wife comes and testifies that her husband died, we should apply the rule that wherever the Torah believed one witness, it's as if they have the power of two. And therefore, say the Ramban and the Rashba, that once the wife's testimony is accepted, no male witness, even though he's a kosher witness and she's a not, should be able to disqualify her testimony. Now, the Rambam clearly disagrees, and he holds that even though the wife testified first, the second witness, the man, is believed. So the Magid Mishnah explains that according to the Rambam, this whole issue depends on two different approaches in the Gemara, in Yivamas and Daf Peches. Uh, the Gemara in the first case says that when you have two women going against one man, so it's as if two men are going against one man, meaning they have the same standing as a man. And the second approach says that two women against one man is as if it's equal. It's like two against two or one against one. So uh, you see that this whole issue is actually a debate in the Gemara. The first position holds that women do have the same standing as men when they are believed. And uh, the second position holds that they do not have the same standing as men. And the Rambam, therefore, would be following that second position. So this would answer the Rambam from the Ramban and the Rashba's question. The Yerushalmi, which says that they have equal standing, is like the other position in our Gemara. But do we follow the second position that even a hundred women, no matter how many women testify, at the utmost they have the power of one man. And uh, one man who testifies against them is going to be more powerful. And a woman really can never dispute a man's testimony and disqualify a man's testimony, even if she comes first. So that would explain why the Rambam holds that even in this case where the woman came first and her testimony was accepted, we don't apply the rule that it's as if there were two witnesses over here. Uh, We still consider this ultimately the testimony of a woman. And if a man comes afterwards, he can disqualify her testimony. What about the Gemara that says that in captivity, a woman is believed against a man? So the Mishnah says that's Shvuya Hekelu. In general, we find a lot of leniencies with regard to women who are taken into 
captivity. And he proves this because even if she and the man came at the same time, she would still be believed. So over there, it's not a matter that since she came first, she's believed and uh, the man's testimony can't disqualify it. It's obviously a, a very exceptional rule that in case of captivity, we're going to believe the woman that she was not violated, but that would not have bearing on our case over here. And therefore, the Rambam rejects the whole notion that in cases other than captivity, if a woman testifies first, her testimony carries the weight of two witnesses, but rather he holds that ultimately a woman's testimony is at best like one witness and a man, a kosher witness, could disqualify it. That is the approach of the Magid Mishnah. Now, Reb Chaim's not satisfied with the Magid Mishnah, and he begins with a, a very sharp question, which also begins to get into the whole issue of the distinction between uh, man's testimony and the women's testimony. So he begins like this. The Magid Mishnah says that according to the second position in the Gemara, that two women are equal to one man. So we see from there that men's testimony is stronger than women's testimony. And therefore, if you have one man against one woman, so the man is certainly going to be believed. So Reb Chaim asks on this that you could say that one man against one woman is also equivalent. And the reason for that is because the Gemara says that one man against a hundred women would also be equal. So it doesn't matter whether there's a hundred women or two women, it makes no difference. All right? Either way, they're the equivalent of one man. So based on that, we could also say that one woman is going to be the equivalent of one man. And the reason for this would be because, says Rab Chaim, why is it that a hundred women would potentially be better than two women? There's no stronger testimony. In halacha, we don't view a hundred witnesses as stronger than two. And women are anyways not kosher witnesses. So why are a hundred women potentially better than two women? So it's because of something Rabbi Chaim calls rov deos. They had more people. In other words, outside of halacha, we recognize that more people admitting the same thing, more people saying the same thing is probably more believable. If you have a hundred people saying something, common sense would indicate that it's probably more likely than if just two people say it. Now, one man, this one male witness does not have rov deos because he's just one person. He has something else, which is that he's a kosher witness in halacha, but he does not have this common sense believability because ultimately he's just one person. So if so, says Rab Chaim, the Gemara is trying to say that no matter how many women you have, it's still the equivalent of one witness. And we could extend that to say that even one woman is going to be the equivalent of one male witness. And therefore, we have no proof to the Magid Mishnah's idea that one male witness is more powerful than one female witness. And nobody disagrees with this Yerushalmi, which says that a woman could contradict a man and a man could contradict a woman in cases where a woman's uh, testimony is accepted. So nobody disagrees with that. And the Magid Mishnah made up a debate between the Bavli and the Yerushalmi on this issue. But everyone could accept that one woman and one man going against each other are equal. Two women or a hundred women are going against one man is also, in all those situations, it would be considered equal. So again, we would have a problem. Why does the Rambam hold that in this case the man is believed and not that it's a suffix, that it's as if the both sides are equal and we don't know what to do? Now, secondly, Reb Chaim asks on this whole notion the Magid Mishnah has that in general, a man's testimony is more powerful than a woman's, except in the case of a captive where we're extra lenient. So Reb Chaim asks, if you're going to say that a man is more believed than a woman, that means the woman's testimony is thrown out. And how could you possibly rely on it, even if you want to be the most lenient possible with captivity situations? But how can you rely on a non-existent testimony? This should be like a captive who has no proof that she wasn't violated, and it should still be usher. And Rab Chaim adds that the Magid Mishnah's proof for this idea was based on the fact that if a man and a woman come at the same time, we still believe the woman. Says Rab Chaim, that's not a proof because at least in that situation, there's a doubt. We don't know what to do because one witness is saying it's okay, one witness is saying it's not. So in that situation, we could say that we're going to follow the leniency because it's Drabanan. So they were lenient and they said that we could allow these captive women. But if you don't have testimony, because the man is believed, so then how could you possibly allow in that case? So those are the two issues Reb Chaim has with the Magid Mishnah's approach. Now, Reb Chaim says that we could answer the first question on the Magid Mishnah 
based on the distinction between women's testimony and men's testimony by saying that the Magid Mishnah holds that even though these are two approaches, when it comes to non-kosher witnesses like women, we have to see how many people agreed. We have rov deos, just the common sense believability. But uh, when it comes to the one kosher witness, the Magid Mishnah holds that that being a kosher witness is itself the same level of believability as the common sense believability that women witnesses have. So uh, therefore, says the Magid Mishnah, even though when it comes to women, if let's say two women were going against three women, we would believe the three women because we would say that that's more believable than the other side, which only has two. But when two women go against one witness, he has the same power as the two women. And when three women go against the one witness, the same thing, he has the same power as them. When a hundred women go against the one witness, because one kosher witness has the same power as all the common sense believability in the world. So based on that, the Magid Mishnah would hold that one male witness against one female witness, the man is certainly believed because he has the power of the believability he's a kosher witness and in this case she's a non-kosher witness and does not have common sense believability there's no rov deos because it's only one person it's only her so that's how the Magid Mishnah explains why the Rambam holds that one man is going to beat one woman so that's a possibility again it gets into the interesting issue over here of how we view the believability issue, the rov deos versus being a kosher witness, because uh, when men and women testify in halacha, so the reason we believe them is different. So when here they're clashing, so it's an interesting issue. But says Rab Chaim, still the issue from his question from the case of Ishvuya, captive remains, so we need a new approach to the Rambam. So in order to explain this Rambam, Rab Chaim comes back to the issue that uh, he just said in the Magid Mishnah, that how do we view this case where non-kosher witnesses are going up against a kosher witness? And we have this odd thing that even though when it comes to the non-kosher witnesses themselves, a hundred non-kosher witnesses is better than two, because you have more people agreeing to it, but to all of them, when they go up against one kosher witness, are not believed. So Rab Chaim explains it based on the Rambam in Hilchus Edus in Perakhof Aleph, where he says that, let's say you have one witness in a case of a sota, so generally he would be believed to say that she's impure to her husband and she loses her ksuba. Uh, so if it turns out that he was lying, there's hazama. Two witnesses can prove that he was not there. He doesn't know what happened. So in that case, he would have to pay her the money, the value of the ksuba, which he tried to make her lose falsely. There's certain cases of hazama, false witnesses, where the person has to pay. So this would be one of them. Says Rab Chaim that this shows us very clearly that the believability of one witness in Sota is considered edus. The low din It's not just that he's believed. In other words, it's not that there's two tracks for a kosher witness. Either they can have two witnesses, and that's considered edus testimony in halacha. Or if there's only one witness, we would believe them, even though it's not halachic testimony, but we would still believe them. Says Rab Chaim, no. This proves very clearly that when you have one witness, they are believed. As edus, they also have the full halacha of testimony, and that's why we can apply the dinim of hazama that they have to pay when they lied, when when it's proven. But if there was no halacha of testimony, then we wouldn't be able to force this one witness to pay. So this is proof: the fact that there's hazama on one witness that. In cases where one witness is believed, they have the full halacha of edus, even though they're missing that crucial ingredient, which we almost always need, which is two witnesses. Similarly, says Rab Chaim, the same thing emerges from the Gemara in Shavuos and Daf Lamed Beis, that a witness who testifies about death falsely, so then they uh, get the full punishment of a carbon shvuasa edus. They have to bring the sacrifice for lying. Says Rab Chaim, again, that sacrifice and that punishment is only if we really consider them in aid. If we just believe them as a different track, it's not edus, then they wouldn't have to bring a sacrifice. The fact that there's a korban for one witness means that he is fully a witness. So from these two proofs, we see that when one witness is believed, we consider them a full witness. And says Rab Chaim, that explains why they're believed to go up against two non-kosher witnesses or even a hundred non-kosher witnesses. Because even though a hundred non-kosher witnesses have a very 
strong believability. They have this very strong rov deos that so many people agree with the same version of events, but they're lacking the crucial element of being kosher witnesses. But this one witness, it's not just that he is believed and he's just another guy in the situation. He is a witness. The halacha gives him the full standing of a witness and therefore he can go up against any two or a hundred non-kosher witnesses. Now, says Rav Chaim that now that we have these two tracks, there's non-kosher witnesses who have ne'emonus and there's kosher witnesses who have edus. So now we can understand a fundamental difference. When it comes to ne'emonus, so we have a rule in all of the Torah, achrei rabim lahatos, that we follow the majority. So we apply that rule in the case of Naamonus too, and that's why a hundred non-kosher witnesses are believed over two non-kosher witnesses, because they have more people, and we always follow the majority. But when it comes to Edus, there is an exception. We suspend the rule of Rove. We don't follow the majority. And uh, this we see clearly in the Gemara in Makos and Daf Hey, that we learn out from the Pasuk of Al Pishnaim Edim, Oshlosha Edim, from two witnesses or three witnesses. So the Gemara learns that you see two kosher witnesses are equal to three kosher witnesses. Meaning when we deal with kosher witnesses, it doesn't matter if there's a hundred or fifty or two, they all have the same power. So we see that when it comes to Edus, the principle of rove is suspended. It doesn't matter whether you have more or less people. So this is going to explain why we have a real clash here because we have some witnesses here who are from the Emmanus and therefore they would follow rove and then we have kosher witnesses who are edus and they don't follow rove. Now, Reb Chaim points out that there is a problem with this theory and that is, let's say you would have one witness in a case of uh, Soto or in a case of the husband died, a kosher witness who's believed and is considered edus, and then you have two kosher witnesses who come against him. So in that case, we would believe the two kosher witnesses. But according to Rab Chaim, once you have edus, you should no longer follow rove. So why are two kosher witnesses better than one witness in those cases? So Rab Chaim formulates this answer very nicely, and that is that the reason two kosher witnesses are better than one witness is not because of rove, it's because of edus. In other words, ultimately, two witnesses is what we consider edus. The Torah says, al pishnaim edim yakum davar. So uh, two witnesses is always what we consider a full edus. So even though, yes, this one aid is considered an edus in halacha, but it's not the full ultimate form of edus, which is two. So if two kosher witnesses come against one kosher witness, they're still going to be believed. But this is not because of a robe. It's because of the halacha of edus. That's how it's formulated. So that would mean, though, that if the one kosher witness is clashing against a hundred non-kosher witnesses, there we can cannot apply the rule of edus, so those hundred witnesses are not automatically going to win. Only if they're kosher witnesses does edus say they win. But otherwise, the one kosher witness has a halacha of edus, and he doesn't follow rove. So we're going to have a clash here between one kosher witness and many, many non-kosher witnesses without being able to apply rove. And to prove this, Rab Chaim gives an example. Imagine you would have one kosher witness, and then on the other side, you would have two witnesses, but they didn't see the testimony together. So the position of the Chachamim in Sanhedrin, Daf Lamid, is that if you have two witnesses who didn't see together, they don't combine into one unit. So how do we view this in this case? So Rab Chaim says we would certainly view it as equal sides. The one witness against the other two are all equal because the other two are not a unit. They're just two separate individuals. Now, if we apply the system of rove in that case, then we should say there's one kosher witness against two kosher witnesses on the other side, and the two witnesses should win, even though they're not one unit, even though they wouldn't be kosher as a unit in Hilchus Edus, but they are a rove. You have two witnesses versus one witness, and they're all kosher. But the fact that we don't say that, says Rab Chaim, proves that rove has no bearing when it comes to edus. It only matters what Hilchus edus say. And in this case, Hilchus edus says that these two witnesses are separate. They're not a unit. They're, each one stands alone. So it's as if you have one witness, one kosher witness, against one kosher witness who also has another kosher witness on his side. But since they're not a unit of two witnesses, so then they are not believed in that case. 
So all of this proves that when it comes to Hilchus Edus, we don't apply the rove. It has to be a kosher testimony from the perspective of Hilchus Edus. That's the only way to defeat an Eid Echad is if you have two witnesses, which is considered a full Edus, as opposed to one aid, which is a, some sort of Edus, but it's not the ideal description of Edus in the Torah. Says Rab Chaim, coming back to our case, if you have one witness who's going up against many witnesses who are women or non-kosher witnesses, so then in that case, from the perspective of Hilchus Edus, the non-kosher witnesses are certainly not a unit. They have no power as Edim, and therefore we cannot say that they would defeat the one witness. So this is the explanation once we get to the core of what it means to be an aid, the power of one aid and this distinction between Hilchus Edus versus just Nehmanus and how Hilchus Edus does not factor in rove. So that explains why one kosher witness going up against two non-kosher witnesses or even a hundred is going to have the same power as them. They cannot defeat him just because they have a lot more people. And again, even though when the non-kosher witnesses go up against each other, we do factor in how many people are on each side, that's because we apply rove. But the, that all falls apart once you have a kosher witness in the situation. Also, at this point, it's worth just reviewing the difference between Rab Chaim and the Magid Mishnah is that the Magid Mishnah, based on the Gemara and Yevamos, holds that a man's testimony, because he's a kosher witness, is stronger than a woman's testimony. But Rab Chaim saying a bit of a different idea. Ultimately, he agrees with that, but he has this whole explanation of it that a man's testimony is considered real edus, which a woman's is not, even if she's believed. And this distinction between edus and nemanus also affects whether we apply a rove. So Rab Chaim's taking all this idea a step further and explaining it based on these concepts. Now, based on his explanation of this whole issue, so Rab Chaim comes back to the Gemara Nivamos, which the Magen Mishnah was based on, and he says that this is exactly what these two approaches in the Gemara are disagreeing about. The first approach, which says that two women are more believed than one man, so they hold that we follow Nehmanus. Since we know that when it comes to two women, they'd be more believed than one woman, or a hundred women would be more believed than two women, so we see that we always follow the more people are agreeing on something, and the, since in this case, it's a case where women are believed, so we see that Nehmanus is the determining factor, and uh, therefore we follow the rove, even if it's against a man. So a two women against one man would be believed. The second position, though, is saying that once you introduced a kosher aid, so now there's a man who's a full aid, he's considered edus, then we don't follow rove anymore, and therefore two women against one man are equal. So this whole issue of when it, when you have a clash between people who have nemanus versus someone who has edus, do we still follow the rove or do we suspend rove and follow the laws of edus? That's exactly what they're arguing about, and that's the whole debate in the Gemara, whether two women against one man, we believe the two women or the one man. And finally, Rab Chaim ends off the third paragraph by coming back to the first question he had asked on the Magid Mishnah at the beginning of the second paragraph. So far, this whole approach has really just been expanding on that question and developing these ideas in more detail. So now we're right back at that question on the Magid Mishnah. The Magid Mishnah assumes that if two women are equal to one man, so it must mean that the man's testimony is more powerful than a woman's. So one man against one woman, certainly the man's going to be believed and and that disagrees with the Yerushalmi that men and women have equal standing. Says Reb Chaim, that doesn't follow anymore. From Reb Chaim's analysis of this issue, we view the whole thing differently. The reason the Gemara holds that two women is equal to one man is not because men's testimony is better. It's that a man is edus. And once you have edus, then you don't follow rove anymore. So it has nothing to do with a man's testimony being better than a woman's testimony. It has to do with whether you apply rove. But if you have one man against one woman, we have no proof that the man would be better. We would still say the same thing. We have an aid versus someone who has believability. And we don't know in that case who we would follow. So we have no proof from this Gemara that men's testimony is better than women's. And we have nobody that disagrees with the Yerushalmi. We still have a Yerushalmi, which says that one man against one woman, they're equal. They have equal standing. And the question remains on the Rambam, why does he say that in this case we believe the man witness and not the woman? 
But the now says Rab Chaim as is his way that there's a problem with this approach. Again, he's saying that in the second approach of the Gemara, we don't apply any principles of rove in this case because there's a kosher witness. So once you introduce edus into the situation, there is no more rove. We don't follow rove even if there's a hundred non-kosher witnesses against them. But says Rab Chaim that that's problematic because. Really, all we know is that we don't apply rove within edus itself. Meaning, if you have two edim going against four edim, we don't apply the rules of rove to say that we believe the four. So that's, in some ways, the essence of edus, that once you have two edim, it's uh, the equivalent of any number that's going to be more than that. But, says Rab Chaim, we don't really know that you cannot apply rove for an external factor. Meaning, let's say you would have something else in this situation which indicates that we should follow Rove. Not just the number of Aden, that it's four Aden against two Aden. But there is something else which is pushing us in the direction of a Rove. So we don't know that Edus disqualifies applying Rove in the entire story. We only know that Edus... Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Disqualifies applying Rove when it comes to within the Adus itself that you have more Adim versus lesser Adim. In other words, in some, Rab Chaim's arguing now that this concept that we suspend Rove when it comes to Adus is only when we're comparing two different testimonies against each other. But we have no proof that as soon as Edus is introduced into a case, then the whole concept of Rove is suspended in that entire case. That we don't find. And Rab Chaim actually has a proof from a Rambam to the distinction he's making now. This is a very impressive proof. Uh, the Rambam in Hilchus Edus, Perak Yudches Halacha Gimel, codifies these Halachas, that more witnesses are not any different than less witnesses. Uh, and he starts off with the case of Hazama. He says that the, the fact that the Torah believed the second set of witnesses who are saying that the first set of witnesses lied is exercise. It's not that we actually believe the second set more than the first set, but the Torah said that that's the way we should do it. Says the Ramam, Even if the first set of witnesses was a hundred, and then only two witnesses came and did Hazama, they said all you hundred were with us on the day that you are supposedly saying you saw whatever happened. So, we believe the two witnesses against the hundred, and we consider all hundred to be Adam Zomimin. Says the Ramam Shashnaim Kimeya, Vumeya Kishnaim, because two is the equivalent of a hundred, and a hundred is the equivalent of two. And then he adds, not only in Hazama, but also, even if you have two witnesses who are just disagreeing, meaning one group says, uh, we saw so and so do something, and the other group says, we saw so and so and so do something different than what you're saying he saw. So there's no hazama. They're not saying that the witnesses weren't there. They're just disagreeing about what story happened. So says the Rambam, We do not say that if one group has more witnesses, then we follow the majority, but rather they're all disqualified and we can't follow any of them. And this comes from a Mishnah in Makos Daf Hay. But Rab Chaim points out that there's a difference between the way the Rambam codifies this and the Mishnah. The Mishnah only mentioned Hazama. That if two witnesses come and they say that three earlier witnesses are lying, the two can make the three Adim Zomim. And that's all the Mishnah said. The Rambam, when he records this halacha, he added the case of Hachasha, where they're not making them Zomim in, they're just disagreeing. The Both sets of witnesses are talking about the story itself, and they disagree about what happened. And the Rambam says that in that case, also, we don't follow the majority. So the Rambam added to this Mishnah of Hazama also the case of Hachasha, that in all cases, uh, two witnesses are equal to a hundred. But says Rab Chaim, this is very problematic to combine these two, because the whole essence of Hazama, as the Rambam started off, is that it's not a matter of who's believed. It's not that we necessarily believe 
the second group above the first group. It's that the Torah said to follow the second group. It's Xeris HaKosuv. So there it makes sense that part of the Xeris HaKosuv is it doesn't matter what the numbers are, even if the first group is larger than the second group. But when it comes to Hachasha, there we don't have Xeris HaKosuv. It's two groups of witnesses who are contradicting each other. But maybe we should follow the larger group. Maybe we should believe the group that has more witnesses over the group with smaller witnesses. So how does the Rambam just combine these two as if it's the same thing when there is a fundamental difference between them? Says Rab Chaim, if not for the Rambam, we would have said that the Pasuk of Alpishnaim Eden that the Gemara learns out all of these halachas from is saying two different things. One is in a case of Hazama. We don't care if the earlier group has more people than the later group. And the second halacha, which is related but not the same, is that in a case of hachasha, if two groups of Edim are disputing each other, we don't necessarily follow the one that has more people, but we treat them equally. So there's no rove when it comes to Edus. But, says Rab Chaim, when you read the Rambam, it sounds like he holds that these are the same halacha, that both in hazama and hachasha. We don't apply the rule of rove. And the question is how the Rambam got from Hazama to Hachasha. So says Rab Chaim that from this Rambam it seems that the Rambam held the principle here is that what we derive from the fact that two can be Mazim three, an earlier group of three, is that there is no application of rove when it comes to Hilchus Edus. We suspend the whole concept of rove when it comes to Hilchus Edus. And therefore all groups of Edim are equal no matter how many witnesses are in each group. And that we can apply also to Hachasha. So even though there is this major difference between Hazama, which is Xeris HaKosu, versus Hachasha, which is an issue that we have two groups going against each other, there is no Xeris HaKosu in that case. But still, the fact that when it comes to Hazama, we see that two can make three Edim Zomimin, that teaches us something which transcends purely Hazama. It teaches us that all groups of witnesses are effectively equal, whether there's two or three or four or a hundred. And that we can apply to Hachasha, even absent the Xeris HaKosiv, we could say that if you have two witnesses going against four or against a hundred, they're all treated equally. So from the fact that the Rambam combines the Halacha of Hachasha and Hazama, we learn this principle that there is no rove when it comes to Hilchos Edus. Now, says Rab Chaim, if that's how the Rambam understood this idea that Hilchus Edos is an exception to the rule, we don't apply the concept of rove in that case, so that shows very clearly that it's a very limited exception. It means when you have three Edom going against two, we don't apply rove. Internal to Hilchus Edos, when you have within the Edos itself a rove, we don't apply the rove. But when it's external, then we certainly would apply a rove. We don't find anywhere in Hilchus Edos that it removes the whole concept of rove from this whole situation and rove plays no role in the eventual outcome. That we don't, that does not emerge from this Rambam at all. And therefore we would not say such a extension of the halacha of this principle that there's no rove in Edus. So, Rab Chaim's distinction at the beginning of this paragraph that there's a difference between whether the rove is internal to the Hilchus Edus or external emerges now clearly from this Rambam that the only rove which is suspended in Hilchus Edus is the internal kind, not an external one. Now, based on this, coming back to the case Rab Chaim had discussed before, where you have two witnesses who saw separately, Edus Miuchedes, which according to the Rabbanan is not one unit of Edus, and they're going against another aid. So we can still understand, says Rab Chaim, why in that case they're all equal. We don't say that we apply a rove in that case, because the two witnesses who saw separately still need to be considered an Edus. They need to be unified as one unit in order to negate and in order to be believed over the one witness. And that they don't have. So again, that's an issue for Hilchus Edus. We're looking at it from the perspective of do these two witnesses, Edus Miuchedes, do they have the power of two Edim from the perspective of Hilchus Edus? And the answer is no. And therefore, we don't apply a rove. We don't say just because they're two, they're necessarily believed over the one witness. But that would be very different to come back to the main case that we're discussing, the Rambam's case, where you have a hundred women going against one kosher witness. 
In that case, then we should apply the rove because now you have a hundred non-kosher witnesses who have believability and they are going against one witness, even though he has Hilchus Edus, but the perspective that we're analyzing this situation from is not that of Hilchus Edus. The rove in this situation is external. And as Rab Chaim just said, we do apply an external rove. So in the situation of a hundred non-kosher witnesses who have believability against one kosher witness, we should follow the hundred non-kosher witnesses. So Reb Chaim's whole analysis now leads us to differentiate between the case where you have two kosher witnesses against three kosher witnesses where we don't apply rov because that's internal to Hilchus Edus. And also similarly, if you have one kosher witness against two kosher witnesses who saw the story separately, so they don't combine into a unit. So again, we don't apply rov. That's all from the perspective of Hilchus Edus. Internally, there can be no rov when it comes to Edim. But in the case that we began with, where you have non-kosher witnesses, many non-kosher witnesses against a kosher witness, there, that's an external rov. It has nothing to do with Hilchus Edus. It's not internal to Hilchus Edus. And therefore, we should apply the rov. So says Rav Chaim, at the end of this whole long analysis, this would explain the Magid Mishnah's position, because this is exactly what the Magid Mishnah is saying. Since we should apply a rove in this case and believe the hundred non-kosher witnesses, and still the Gemara in the second approach says that they're equal to the one male kosher witness, so that shows us that the kosher witness has some sort of power over the non-kosher witnesses, and therefore if we apply that into the case of one kosher witness against the non-kosher witness, one man against a woman, so then we should believe the man. So the Magid Mishnah, if he follows this idea that the rove is applied even against an aid when it comes from an external source, so this would explain his proof that a man against a woman, the man is believed, because since we see that many women against a man is equal, even though it should be a rove, it must be that the man witness is more powerful than the woman witness, and therefore, in a case of one against one, the man is believed. But now, in the beginning of the fifth paragraph, Rab Chaim backtracks from this whole second approach. He goes back to his first approach, and he says that uh, actually, once we see that we don't apply a rove internally to Hilchus Edus, so then we should say that even an external rove we're not going to apply. Once there is any Edus in the situation, then we are no longer going to follow any rove. So that's why one kosher witness is the equivalent of a hundred non-kosher witnesses, because we no longer apply the rove. And the two approaches in the Gemara and Yevamos, which disagree about whether two women against one man, the women are believed or they're equal, says Rab Chaim, they're not arguing about whether we apply a rove to Edus or not. They're actually arguing about whether one witness is considered an aid or he just has Nemmanus. So the whole uh, concept Rab Chaim began with, that when one witness is believed, they're considered an aid and not just that they have some believability. That is itself the Machlokas in the Gemara and the first position holds that there's just believability, so that's why two women against one man are believed, because it's two against one. The man has no special power because he's just one witness, and the second approach agrees with what Reb Chaim has been saying, that one man is still considered an aid, and that's why he's the equivalent of no matter how many non-kosher witnesses are against him. So according to this, if we're back to Reb Chaim's first approach, then we're back to the question on the Magid Mishnah, because the second approach in the Gemara never said that a man witness is better than a woman witness. All it said is we don't apply a rove in a case where there's a man who's a kosher witness because now there's an aid. Once there's an aid, there's no more rove. So if so, we have no proof anymore that the one man against one woman, the man would be believed, and we still have a Yerushalmi which says that they have equal standing, and the, the Gemara could also accept that. All the Gemara meant to say is that we don't apply a rove if there would be more non-kosher witnesses. But one man against one woman would be equal, and so the question on the Rambam remains, according to this first approach from Rab Chaim, which he developed in the third paragraph, and he's now coming back to it in the fifth paragraph, uh, why does the Rambam hold that one man against one woman, the man is believed against the Yerushalmi, that they have equal standing? So Reb Chaim's approach to the Rambam is that the Rambam is actually saying something very limited. And he points out that the only thing the Rambam says that a kosher witness 
is believed against the woman is that she is not totally believed as if she's two witnesses and the kosher witness, his testimony is totally disqualified. That's the only thing the Rambam says over here. But he doesn't say the other way that one witness is totally believed and could disqualify the woman's testimony. So all the Rambam is saying is that just like if one kosher witness would come up against a 100 non-kosher witnesses, we would view them as all equal. So in the same way, in this case, even though the woman testified first that her husband had died, we don't say that once her testimony is accepted, it's as if she's two witnesses, she has the power of two witnesses, and the kosher witness cannot testify anymore. No, he can still testify, and now it's going to be equal. There's a dispute over here, and we have to treat them both equally. But ultimately the Rambam agrees that the woman can also dispute the kosher witness's testimony, whether they come separately, whether they come at the same time even, she's still able to dispute him. So whether it's just one woman, whether there's many women, in all cases we're going to view this as palga upalga, as if they both have equal power. So the only thing the Rambam is saying here is that if a non-kosher witness comes first, we don't apply the rule of kolmok Wherever the Torah believed one witness, it's as if they're two. And Rab Chaim even adds to this that the Rambam in Hilchos Rotzeach and Perek Tess says that if you have one woman who says that she saw the murderer and another woman says she didn't see it, so they used to do the Egla Rufa in a case where we have a dead body, we don't know the murderer. Says the Rambam, whether the two women came together or whether they came separately, even so, we do the Egla Rufa in that case because we have two equivalent witnesses disagreeing about whether someone saw the murder. Now, let's say a kosher witness would come and say they saw the murderer and then another kosher witness would dispute their testimony. So in this case, we have two kosher witnesses, not non-kosher witnesses like the last case. So there the Rambam says that we don't do the Egla Arufa. And the reason is because that first witness who came and was believed, he now has the power of two. And the second witness cannot dispute what he said. The second witness is like one witness going up against two witnesses. So very clearly the Rambam in that case differentiates between a kosher witness and a non-kosher witness. And he says that the principle that once we accept someone's testimony, it's as if they're two, is only applied to kosher witnesses. We don't apply it to non-kosher witnesses. If so, says Rab Chaim, back to our Rambam over here, we have a problem because the Rambam says that if the woman says her husband died and then a kosher witness comes and disputes her, then she shouldn't get married. But the implication is, let's say another woman or a non-kosher witness would come and dispute what she said, then she could remarry. But why should there be a difference? In all cases, we should say that there's one against one, it's equivalent testimony, and she should be unable to marry. So why does the Rambam here make a differentiation between whether a kosher witness came up against the wife or a non-kosher witness? Meaning, once we learn from the Rambam in Hilchus Rotzeach that we never accept the non-kosher witness's testimony as if it's two, so this woman who said her husband died never has the power of two, and even if a non-kosher witness disputes her, she should be unable to marry. So Rab Chaim says that we're forced to say that this type of testimony is different and that when a woman says her husband died, she has more believability than a regular case of a non-kosher witness, like in the case of Egla Rufa, there she has less believability than in the case where she says her husband died. And the reason that Rab Chaim has two possibilities, either because here we have a chazaka isha daiko minseva, that a woman checks very carefully before she gets married, no woman wants to be in a situation where she's married and then her husband comes back and she has to divorce the second husband and her children might be mamzerim. So a woman is very, very careful to make sure that her story is correct when she's going to get remarried. Uh, or second possibility is because people don't lie about something which could be found out. So uh, whether or not her husband is dead is something which could certainly be established. If he comes home, everyone's going to know that she lied. So because of uh, one of these possibilities, we have to say that this is a situation where we believe the wife more than a regular situation. So even though when it comes to a non-kosher witness. We never apply the rule that they have the same power as two witnesses. But in this case, we would believe the woman 
who says her husband died more than in a regular case of a non-kosher witness. And that's why the Rambam holds that this only applies when the second witness is also non-kosher. Meaning when they're both non-kosher, we could say that since she has more believability than a regular non-kosher witness, so we believe the wife and she can remarry. But we're not going to apply that against a kosher witness. The same way we don't apply rov deos. We don't say if there's a hundred women against a kosher witness, the hundred are believed because we have a kosher witness. So in the same way, we're not going to apply this woman's slight more believability that her husband died against a kosher witness. So the fact that there is no principle that a non-kosher witness is believed like two, the only thing we have is that a woman who says her husband died has some more believability than a regular case of a non-kosher witness who's believed so that's why there's a distinction between who disputes her. If it's a non-kosher witness, then she can still win because we'll apply external factors of believability and believe her. But if it's against a kosher witness, so then we don't apply those factors and that's why it's a stalemate and she cannot marry. So according to Rab Chaim's reading of the Rambam, all the Rambam is telling us over here is not that a kosher witness is more powerful than non-kosher witnesses. It's uh, not anything the Magid Mishnah was implying, but it's simply that we don't apply the rule of when it comes to non-kosher witnesses. And therefore, this woman who says her husband died does not have the full power of two. And if a kosher witness comes against her, then it's equivalent it's palga upalga, and she cannot remarry. That is Rab Chaim's reading of the Rambam. Now, if so, says Rab Chaim, then this is the machlokas, the Rambam and the Ramban. The Ramban is disagreeing, and he holds that we do apply this principle of komokum shamina Torah even when that one witness is a non-kosher witness. And that's why he holds that when the woman comes first and says her husband died, the Torah gave her the power of two witnesses once her testimony is accepted. It's as if the, it has two witnesses, and therefore, no matter which witness comes against her, whether it's a kosher witness or not, any witness who comes up now is only one witness against two, and we don't believe them whatsoever, and she's able to remarry. And what the Rambam disagrees with is that he does not apply this principle to a case of a non-kosher witness, so therefore, the wife does not have the power of two. There is some more believability because a woman checks carefully or she doesn't want it to be evident that she lied. So that's why she would be believed against a non-kosher witness who comes because the believability is a factor when we're evaluating it in case of two non-kosher witnesses. But against a kosher witness, we're not going to apply that. We don't apply factors of believability. It has to be a real edus in order to disqualify a one kosher witness. And that's why the Rambam says that if one kosher witness comes against her, then they're equivalent, whether they come at the same time, whether they come separately, either way, they're going to be a stalemate and she cannot marry. And if she married, then she would have to leave the second husband. So that ultimately is the machlokas, the Rambam and the Ramban. And finally, according to Rab Chaim's approach, so the Rambam would fit with the Yushalmi. The question that the Rishonim asks on the Rambam, that the Yushalmi says that a man and a woman have equal standing when they're both believed. So so according to Rab Chaim, there is no problem for the Rambam from that Yerushalmi because the Rambam only holds that a one kosher witness is not disqualified by the woman coming first. But he agrees that the kosher witness can't disqualify the wife either. So they're equal in this case. The man versus the woman, whether they come separately, whether they come together, whether there's many non-kosher witnesses or just one, in all cases, it's going to be equal. It's a stalemate. And that's exactly what the Yerushalmi said, that a man and a woman have equal standing. And the Rambam too agrees with that. And in fact, the Rambam even recorded that halacha in the case of the shvuya, of the captive. Magin Mishnah thinks that the captive is a special exception that we're so lenient, but Rab Chaim saying it's part of the same framework, that a man and a woman going against each other have equal standing, it's just a stalemate. And the fact that the Rambam doesn't mention all this in these halachas is because he already mentioned it in the case of shvuya, and the case of a shvuya and other cases where non-kosher witnesses are believed are all the same. So the Rambam did not have to review it, but none of this contradicts the basic halacha that the Rambam recorded over here, that if even if the woman comes first, still if there's a kosher witness after that, then it, it reverts to being a stalemate and she has to leave her second husband. 
So this is Rab Chaim's reading of the Rambam, and this accounts for all the various aspects of the situation. The key conceptual points that Rab Chaim analyzes are the distinction between Edus versus Ne'emmanus, that when you have kosher Edim, so that is considered full-fledged Edus in the Torah, and there's certain laws which govern how Edus is evaluated, versus when you have a non-kosher witness, even though there are times when they're believed in Halacha, but that is considered that's just considered believability and it has different laws. Uh, the second conceptual point that Rabbi Chaim makes is that one witness, even though that's not generally a kosher testimony, you need two witnesses in halacha, but there are cases when one witness is believed, but Rabbi Chaim says that one witness is not ne'emmanus, it's edus. So when you have one kosher witness, we consider that edus and not just ne'emmanus. And the third key point that he discusses is that rove is not applicable to cases of edus. In Hilchus edus, rove is not followed, even though in other areas we do follow rove. And very beautifully, Rab Chaim brings all this together, and he says that that's one of the key differences between Nemanus and Edus. That in Hilchus Edus we don't follow Rov, but in Hilchus Nemanus we do. And when we factor in the Eid Echad into this situation, so when you have an Eid Echad going against many non-kosher witnesses, then we have a clash between Edus and Nemanus and whether or not to apply Rov. And Rab Chaim applies all that into this case of the Rambam, where a woman says her husband died, and then a kosher witness disputes it. So according to the Rambam, she cannot remarry. According to the Ramban, she can. And the Magid Mishnah has a reading of this, that it's because a kosher witness's testimony is better than a non-kosher witness's testimony. But ultimately, after bringing in all these concepts, Rab Chaim has a different explanation of this Rambam, which centers on the issue of whether we apply the rule of that when the Torah believed one witness, it has the power of two, do we apply that to a non-kosher witness? And the Rambam holds we don't, and the Ramban holds we do. And as mentioned in the beginning, these are themes, the kosher and the non-kosher witnesses, the one aid versus the many, the concept of Nemanus versus Edus, that what Rab Chaim will pick up later and develop in other pieces. Also, uh, it's also just worth mentioning as the current events that when the state of Israel was founded, so this became uh, an important halachic concept because you couldn't run a modern country without accepting any testimony from women or other people who would have been puzzle for Edos in halacha. So uh, there was some discussion about there about how to incorporate them into the modern court system to be able to give testimony and these types of concepts became important. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a nature show host. In a native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got Geico, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. Geico will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. Geico. Great service. Without all the drama.